0: Good afternoon, it's a beautiful day today and it's another day that we can come together and rejoice in the Lord and have a devotional thought here at the noon hour and I hope uh, today you'll be blessed. I want to look at a very special subject today I've called iron mixed with clay, iron mixed with clay and I'd like to turn to Daniel chapter 2, I want to look at a very interesting prophecy This afternoon, Daniel chapter 2. For those of you who have your Bibles, let's look at Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at a very, very simple and and, uh, basic prophecy that basically lays the foundation for the later visions of John and Daniel. And we're going to start reading there in the second chapter of Daniel in verse 31. But before we read, I'd just like to bring you up to speed. For those of you who may not know what Daniel 2 is all about, basically in this chapter, a king named Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled ancient Babylon, had a dream one night. And this dream was a very intense dream, and evidently he woke up from this dream and could not remember the contents of the dream, let alone understand what it meant. And so after waking up and and realizing he could not remember the dream, he called together all the wise men of his kingdom, and he asked them to to use their powers to try to ascertain both the dream and the interpretation. And as we know from Daniel chapter 2, they could not do that, and so eventually he got upset and and, uh, mandated a death decree against these men, which included Daniel and his three friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So now Daniel and his friends are in a crisis because they are included in this death decree. And Daniel goes before the king and says, look, give us some time and we'll see if we can come up with the answer. And so the king granted them his request and they went back and had a prayer meeting and the God of heaven revealed the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And so Daniel finds himself before this king and in verse 31 he begins to describe this dream. And please read with me silently as I read out loud. Verse 31, Daniel 2. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass... His legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away. That no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now I know that you're eating, and I know that it's tough to concentrate, but I, but I want you to just listen to me very carefully. I want to describe to you the general uh, order of this dream, and then we're going to look at the interpretation. Now here, Daniel describes that the king dreamed of a great image, and evidently that great image was in the shape of a human being, it had a human form. That image had a head of gold, it had chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then down at the bottom on the feet, the feet were made of iron and clay. And then evidently, a stone that's cut out without hands comes to the image, and it's interesting that the image was first hit at the feet. The stone did not hit the head of the image, it hit the feet of the image, and then as a result of those feet being destroyed by the stone, the rest of the image was basically obliterated, and then that stone became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Now this is basically a prophecy that outlines a succession of world empires in history. Not every world empire, but a main general order of world empires. Now, beginning in verse 36, Daniel gives the interpretation. Daniel says in verse 36, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom... Empower and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Now right here, Daniel talks to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Look, the God of heaven has given you supreme power and authority and basically you and your kingdom are symbolized by this head of gold. And so we can see that Daniel says very clearly here that Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of ancient Babylon equal the head of gold. And the record of history will tell us that Babylon ruled from approximately 605 B.C. to the year 539 B.C., give or take a year. Okay. Now, if you look at verse 39, it's very interesting that Daniel outlines that there were successive kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Verse 39, and after these shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise." So here we see that after the kingdom of gold, Babylon, there there will come a kingdom of silver, a kingdom of brass, and a kingdom of iron. Now this may be elementary, but we understand that after Babylon fell, Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire. And you'll find a brief mention of that at the end of Daniel chapter 5, when Cyrus the Great and his Persian armies destroyed ancient Babylon, and that took place in the year 539 B.C. And we know that Medo-Persia, that empire ruled until the year 331 when Alexander the Great and the Greco-Macedonian armies defeated Darius III in the Battle of Golgomela in 331. Alexander destroyed the Persian Empire, decimating that empire and bringing Greece onto the scene of history. So we can see that while the head of gold is Babylon and the chest and arms of silver are the belly and thighs symbolized the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire lasted until the year 168 B.C. when the Imperial Roman Empire conquered the Greek nation and really Macedonia in that year, in the year 168 at the Battle of Pydna. And so we can see again Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then in 168, beginning with the legs of iron, Imperial Rome. Now... What's interesting about this vision now is that verse 41 begins to talk about the feet of iron and clay. And this whole concept is a very, very interesting and revealing concept to consider. Now, in verse, 30, uh, in verse 41, rather, notice it says, and whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of what? Notice the term potter's, clay, very significant, and we're going to come back to that, it says, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, isn't it interesting that through that one verse, the potter's clay transitions into miry clay. You with me? Now that's significant. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, let me review for a moment. We have the head of gold being Babylon, chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia, belly and thighs of brass, Greece, legs of iron, Rome, imperial Rome. But then we see the feet of iron and clay. Now, notice it's said in the text that this kingdom is partly strong, partly broken. It's divided. And I would suggest to you that there are two there, this is, there's a dual view, basically, of the feet of iron and clay. The first view is, is that this symbolizes a divided world state, a divided system of nations, basically. Because since the fall of Imperial Rome in AD 476, there's been no global empire, if you will, or a massive empire that, that has brought a good number of the nations of the earth under one rule. There's been some attempts, but there's been attempts that have proved futile. And so it symbolizes a divided state that will continue to exist until Jesus comes back the second time. That's one view, all right? Now, the other view involves the potter's clay transitioning into miry clay. When you study the Bible, you will find that the symbol of potter's clay is quite often associated with God's people, God's church. You find in the book of Isaiah, The people of God say, Lord, you are the potter, we are the clay, right? But then, notice it transitions into miry clay. And when you look at the concept of mire in the Bible, or miry clay, it symbolizes infidelity, unmoldability, whereas uh, potter's clay is moldable and workable, whereas miry clay is is dirty and filthy and, and unworkable, unmoldable. And when you apply the concept of clay... To a church, we can see that a once faithful church becomes an apostate church. And we find that the clay and the iron mingle and attempt to cleave. Now, when we think of the concept of cleaving, we think back to Genesis in marriage, when a man shall leave his parents and shall cleave unto his wife, and the twain shall become one flesh. Well, in a sense, you can understand the iron to be a symbol of the state, and clay as a symbol of the church in in an attempt to mingle church and state in a union. But God tells us very clearly in the Bible that church and state can never mix. Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so what we see in the feet of iron and clay is not just a divided kingdom, but we see basically a symbol of the papal Roman Empire that came after imperial Rome, and a global attempt, evidently, to unionize church and state. And brethren and sisters, I'm here to tell you right now, there are movements in progress that are attempting to bring church and state together. And we need to understand that in a nation such as America, we have a pillar of religious liberty that quite often we take for granted. But we are heading into a time when there will be an attempt by papal Rome and the nations of the earth to unionize and globalize a union of church and state, as depicted by this prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. Now, quite often we don't take the prophecy to this depth because quite often we stop at just this divided state. But the reality is is there's a deeper meaning there. And we have to dig and understand. And when we study the prophecies of Revelation 13 and 17, we will see that Daniel 2 is a parallel to those. There will be a last day attempt to unionize church and state as depicted by the mingling of iron and clay. Now, in verse 44, notice what God says here through the prophet Daniel to the king Nebuchadnezzar. And in the days of these kings, talking about the ten toes, the divided kingdoms, shall the God of heaven... Set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, I'm going to come back to that because that's a very significant detail. Now, in verse 45, it says, For as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So what we see here is that God says that in the days of this divided state, God is going to set up a kingdom. And that kingdom is described by a stone cut out of a mountain without hands. Now... I could spend a whole hour unpacking what that concept means. But I will break this down very simply to you and give you the short version. I believe, again, there's a dual meaning to this concept. Because whenever you look at a kingdom, a kingdom has two parts. A king or a ruler, and then the subjects of that kingdom. And so when you look at the stone, that stone symbolizes both Christ... Because there are many, many texts in the Bible that associate Jesus with a stone, and that kingdom also, or that stone also symbolizes Christ's kingdom, because we are living stones built on the foundation of the chief cornerstone. And when you look at Zechariah chapter 12 verse three, you will find God's people described as a burdensome stone. Now let me unpack this for a second. When this stone comes and hits this image, notice? It hits the feet. That's the union of church and state that is destroyed when Jesus comes again. But then notice the rest of the image is destroyed after that. So the destruction comes in two phases. First the feet, then the entire image. And I suggest to you that Jesus as the stone comes to destroy the feet at the second coming. But then remember Jesus with his kingdom will judge during the millennium. And then all the evil of this world will be destroyed in the final judgment in the lake of fire. Now notice, go back to verse 35 for a second. I want to show you something. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. Where have we ever seen that phrase before in the Bible? Now, keep your finger there and go to Revelation 20. I want to show you something kind of interesting here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And and verses 11 to 15 describes a time of executive judgment where sinners are annihilated. All the unsaved people that have ever lived are resurrected and they are annihilated in the final judgment of hellfire. And in verse 11 it says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found what? No place for them. Paralleling Daniel 2.35 that we just read. And so what I'm saying to you is, is that this stone comes and hits the feet, Second advent of Christ, destroying the papacy and a global union of church and state. And then that stone also symbolizes Christ's kingdom to where Jesus and His kingdom during the millennium judge the unsaved and then exact that punishment upon them at the end of the millennium, thus destroying the rest of the image. Okay? And then, of course, that stone becomes a great mountain and fills the entire earth, which is a description of how Christ and His kingdom, His people, His followers... Inhabit the earth made new, where righteousness and holiness will pervade in the eternal world. So what we see in Daniel 2 is Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of silver, Greece, the belly and thighs of brass, Imperial Rome, the legs of iron, a divided state and a symbol of the papacy, and a union of church and state with the feet of iron and clay, and then Christ's second coming, and the judgment of the wicked, which will then lead to the eternal world. All outlined in this simple prophecy. Now here's a healthy side note that I want to I consider for just a moment. You ever wonder why this image is stoned and not hit with a baseball bat or destroyed in some other way? You know, when you study the concept of stoning in the Bible, there are several reasons why stonings take place in the Bible. Number one, Coveting Babylonian goods, according to the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Sabbath breaking, fornication, nature and idol worship, having drunkard children, adultery, and and claiming divinity. These are all reasons why stonings take place in the Bible. And it's interesting that the very spirit of the papacy encompasses all of those things. And trying to use the civil power to enforce religious beliefs. And that's why religious liberty is so important. And that's a whole side note. But let me bring this home now. We've discussed a little bit of theology, a little bit of prophecy. But let me make this practical now. Because that's what I've tried to do this week, is try to make things practical. How is it relevant? That's the issue. What can we learn from this prophecy? Well, there's several things we can learn. Number one... We can trust the Bible as accurate. Because through these pages, the Bible, centuries before these empires even came on the scene of history, the Bible predicted that they would come. And so this prophecy flies in the very face of skeptics who try to discount the inspiration of the Bible. This prophecy proves that the Bible can be trusted. Can you say amen? I was worried there for a second. All right. Number two. Notice also that these empires of history, as they increased in power and scope, lessened in their value as far as the metals that represented them, which shows a degeneracy while increasing in power and scope, which shows the moral degeneracy of our world and how we are in basically the, the time, a time of very deep, deep immorality in our world today. Very interesting observation. Number three, clearly this prophecy describes that our world is in a divided state. Right? And number four, we can see very clearly that we are living in the final hours of earth's history because we're right in the feet and toes of the statue. So we're living on the precipice of the eternal world, friends. Now, that very fact leads us to a very important consideration. Notice we're in a divided state. I wonder if this divided state, this iron and clay mixture, is an illustration of the spiritual condition of many of the hearts, even of God's people. When you look at your soul right now, is your heart divided? You with me? You know what, friends? We live in a world where there are so many distractions that we are clearly tempted on every side to have a divided heart. But the Bible very clearly says that iron and clay can't mix. Sin and righteousness can't mix. Worldliness and godliness cannot mix. But how many of us, even in this room right now, have a divided heart whose affections are divided between God and the things of this world? Right? God says, come out and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. Christ and Belial cannot be divided. What fellowship hath light and darkness? Can two walk together except they be uh, agreed? The scripture reading, a house divided against itself can't stand. And neither can a kingdom. You see, friends, we need to realize that even though this prophecy contains a powerful historical lesson, and even into the future, that it also illustrates the condition of our hearts in this day and age, in that we are divided, brothers and sisters, not just as a church between each other, but inside of our very hearts. And we must get ourselves to a point where we do not allow anything to eclipse a wholehearted surrender to Christ, a heart that is single to the glory of God. So where is your heart this morning? Honestly. You know that stone is going to come and pulverize the feet and the image. And if we have a divided heart, friends. And this is a hard truth. I'm not trying to beat, beat up on you. But I am trying to, 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 to clearly try to awaken conviction within you. That if we have a divided heart, we're going to be destroyed with, a, with this divided kingdom when Jesus comes. We must have a heart that is single to God's glory. I want to show you a scripture in Matthew chapter 21. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Check this. This is an awesome, awesome text right here. Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 42. Matthew 21, verse 42. Now, this is Christ, and he's talking to the spiritual leaders of the ancient nation of Israel in his day. And he says to them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, he's talking about the stone that's rejected. Who is is he referring to? Himself, right? He is the stone. Now, notice he goes on to say, Therefore I say unto you, and he's talking to the the religious leaders of his day, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. He tells them that they're going to lose their standing with God. And then he goes on to say, And whomsoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Friends, that's Daniel 2 terminology. Jesus says you have to fall on the stone and be broken or when that stone comes, it will grind to powder. And friends, that's why I'm trying to tell you that if our hearts are divided, if we have not totally fallen on the rock of Christ and been broken through a total surrender of the heart and life to Jesus, if we have a divided heart when Jesus returns we will be destroyed. And I'm not trying to be negative about it, but that's the reality of this prophecy. And that's why I've tried each and every message this week, and I know I've, I've been all over the place with different subjects throughout this week of prayer, but you know what? I've tried to focus on some common denominators, and that is exercising the power of choice to decide to surrender completely to Jesus every day of your life. Because, friends, nothing less than a commitment like that will see us into the eternal world. That's just the reality. But we're so tempted on every side to let our affections go off onto the wide path when Jesus is saying, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus wants all of us, brothers and sisters, and it's true, we struggle with a fallen nature every day. That sinful nature wants to come up and control us. But you know what? If we would make a commitment every day to say, Lord, I'm sinful, I'm lost without you, I choose to surrender myself to you every morning. If we would have that experience every morning, God will work with us in a mighty way. But friends, I really appeal to you today. I know I'm, a little, I'm probably sounding a little agitated, a little bit more spunky than usual. But, but I have such a burden, brothers and sisters, to see the power of God come upon His people like never before, because we live in a day when we need that power, friends. Evil is in a, un, at unprecedented levels today, and we need to make sure that we have the fullness of God in us so that we can rise above the pull of the world. Our hearts need to be single to God's glory so that we can receive the fullness of God. And so I appeal to you in closing today, please, friends, look at yourself. Don't don't play games with God. Do you think that you can actually pull one over on the Lord? He sees things as they really are. We may even convince other people that we are holy and righteous. I might even convince you standing up here. Now, I'm I'm, I'm being honest. I'm trying to say that I am trying to be surrendered, all right? But friends, only God knows the heart. And He knows what you're really like. And not what you're like at church either. Or at prayer meeting or at these meetings. What you're like behind closed doors. And He wants us to be consistent. And He wants us to be single to His glory with an undivided commitment to Christ. Because Christ will not share your heart with anyone or anything. He wants it all to Himself. So as you consider how you're going to respond today, The question is, will you make a commitment in your heart right now to say, Lord, I'm sick of being divided. I want to be single to your glory. I want to be single to your glory. I've made mistakes. I struggle at times. But God, help me to give you my whole heart. Will you choose that today? Because He's not going to force you. He's not going to force it, friends. He's enlightened you, He's convicted you, and then He's left you free to choose. And you can choose whether or not you will fall on the rock and be broken, or whether you will choose to remain divided and be destroyed when Jesus comes. And by the way, not choosing is choosing by default. The question is, will you choose today? Now listen, you've received a card each and every meeting. And I'm not going to take the time right now to go through this card. But I would encourage you as you consider your decision to take this out and respond by checking the desire of your heart. But I would really appeal to you right now in this moment of time, friends. Don't put off for tomorrow what you can do right now. Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. We must choose when we have opportunity and that opportunity is right now. How many of you with raising your hand today would want to say with me, I want an undivided heart with Jesus. I want to fall on that stone and be broken so that I am all of the Lord's and not just half. God bless you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us enough to warn us of the spiritual dangers that threaten our soul on every side. Lord, we see that we are living in the final hours of earth's history and the hourglass, as it were, is is running out. The sands of time are running out. The next event to take place is the coming of our Lord and Savior. And of course, there are other things that must transpire also. But Lord, we see that we are on the very verge of eternal realities. And if we're honest with ourselves, Lord, we realize that our heart is divided and we want our heart to be undivided. We want it to be single to your glory. So please, Lord, accept us even now. Accept our decision to surrender our whole heart to you. We give you permission to go in and sweep our hearts clean and have full control. Bless us, Lord, as we choose to make this commitment And as we leave this place, may Satan have no power over us. May the seed of your word not be removed from our minds. May we walk in the light of this commitment. And may heavenly angels go with us and empower us to reflect the image of Jesus to everyone who sees us. Give us this experience, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.